the people of sake actually brought me into sake. Back in 1988, this place was actually in Ginza on the main drag. At first it was kind of soy sauce, it was miso. To the point where it actually changed my life. New Year's Day 1989. Uh, not just sake as a beverage, but all the culture and history. Of- Welcome and thanks for tuning in once again to a brand new episode of Sake on Air, the world's very first podcast dedicated to expanding the dialogue surrounding Japan's iconic beverages of sake and shochu. My name is Justin Potts and I am one of your regular hosts here on the show. The show brought to you with the fantastic support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association and broadcast more often than not from the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center located in the heart of Tokyo. Another year and another chance for us to set ourselves up for failure with a series of wild predictions. This year, the team has independently put together their own list of predictions and expectations for what the worlds of Sake and Shochu may have in store for 2022. Intentionally, we haven't shared or discussed any of our views with one another in advance. So what you're hearing is actually a reflection of what each of us is really truly seeing and feeling based upon our own individual views and experiences. Nothing is for certain, but it's you know, a fun exercise nonetheless. After listening this week, please do be sure to share your own insights or expectations for the year ahead in the world of sake and shochu. Share them with us over on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. And this week, note that the views expressed by everyone on the show are indeed those of the individual and don't necessarily reflect the thoughts or opinions of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association, any particular brewery, distillery, or industry-related organization. Our thoughts are our own, which is part of what makes this fun. We hope everyone's 2022 is off to a happy and healthy start and that your year is filled with delicious sake and shochu, in moderation, of course. With that, let's get on with the show. One interesting thing that stood out to me last year, which will, I think, start to play out in a very real way in the year ahead, is the proliferation of relatively high quality, but also relatively low budget Jumai Daiginjo. While I personally prefer to remain stylistically agnostic when it comes to the various styles of sake and their classifications, I really think it's important to value and focus on taking each bottle on its own terms. For better or for worse, the current market has indeed been cultivated to value Jumai Daiginjo or Daiginjo-style sake above others and has generally priced it accordingly. However, I have been noticing that particularly a lot of mid to large volume producers have been retooling their product line to offer usually a Jumai Daiginjo product or occasionally Daiginjo at a price point much closer to that of, say, their Jumai Ginjo or even their Jumai in the same product line. What this means is that when consumers and sake lovers walk into a supermarket in Japan, a specialty grocery, or in some cases even a convenience store, on the sake shelf, alongside the standard Honjozo or Jumai styles that are on offer from producers whose names they're very familiar with, now these same sake lovers are going to also start seeing Jumai Daiginjo or something very similar on offer at a price point that isn't too far removed from those other products. There's reason to believe that sake with a sake a classification that they generally interpret as high quality or premium paired with a brand that they feel they can trust and is readily available will become a pretty tempting proposition. 
This is a rather interesting push because it's taking place right alongside many producers of all shapes and sizes, often even the same producers bringing to market the same kind of products I'm talking about right now, producers that are also trying to raise the value perception on, for example, Jumai categorized sake or even a lot of non-classified styles of sake. With both of these movements sort of taking place in tandem, it'll be very interesting to see what people end up gravitating toward and how this will play out, not just in the coming year, but in the long term when it comes to shaping the value propositions surrounding different kinds of sake down the road. Another thing that I'm thinking we'll see a great deal more of this year, and which will likely become an industry standard of best practices in the next few years, is further entrusting and empowering entities and individuals involved in the sales, promotion, and education of sake and shochu globally, supporting them and empowering them with a great deal more information and resources, resulting in a whole lot more autonomy for those with boots on the ground in various regions around the world trying to spread the word of sake and shochu. Over the past two years, there seems to have been a certain arc that a good majority of producers and those in central roles within the industry in Japan have experienced, beginning with hope, evolving into a bit of a fatigue, and then ultimately a period of exception and then embracing uh, this, new this new movement. Back in the spring of 2020, everyone was naturally caught off guard and realized very quickly that they weren't adequately using the tools at their disposal to promote their breweries, their, distiller, their distilleries, and to keep a steady stream of quality information and education flowing to both domestic and global markets. With producers and various organizations banding together, essentially throwing everything on the wall to see what, if anything, would stick, the process was really exciting and the response from the wider sake and shochu community was super positive. But if I'm being honest, for most, the process wasn't really one that was being utilized to create a long-term solution to communication challenges. More than anything, it was sort of treated as a bit of a stopgap solution, a way of sort of riding things out until everything could get back to abnormal. But things never really went back to exactly the way they were. And the pressure to continue delivering on the massive volume of online tours, regular business matching sessions online, providing new original learning and educational opportunities, it all led to a bit of a fatigue for many. You know, so instead of transitioning, many were just doing a whole lot more on top of everything else. And while a lot of producers and organizations struggled there for a little bit, I think it's ultimately led to a stance of empowerment. Although we now all connect easier, faster, and more comfortably, Many of the producers and Japan in Japan and the related organizations have shifted to providing more qualified people and organizations with the information, resources, and trust that allows them to really use those resources provided to create more customized and effective means of delivering and sharing information and product locally. So if there are purveyors of great product and information in your region of the globe that you trust, you know, let those people know what it is you'd like to know and, more than anything, what you'd like to drink. Chances are they have more opportunities and support available than ever to help them realize our collective sake dreams. Well, global distribution tobacco aside, that is, but I guess that's a topic for another day. And looking ahead, last but not least, in April of 2021, 
there was a change to regulation that went into effect that significantly lowered the barrier to entry for new sake breweries coming into fruition here domestically in Japan. That's with one caveat, however. The sake produced there also had to be destined for export. Those that seized the opportunity early in order to help make their business model viable, and because a lot of them, they want to also be able to sell and share their sake with the domestic market, a lot of those same producers are also making a product for that domestic market that looks a lot like sake, smells a lot like sake, and in many cases, tastes a whole lot like the sake that you're used to. But they're really performing a pretty exciting balancing act in the ways that they've managed to produce very familiar and high-quality product while also making sure that it keeps just shy of drifting over into becoming an, something that gets tied up in the actual legal sake classification. How this could disrupt production regulations domestically, as well as change perceptions in both the domestic and international markets, remains to be seen but it's definitely something to keep an eye on. We'll have to delve into this topic in a lot more detail sometime in the year ahead. Next up, we will be hearing from the one and only Mr. John Gauntner. For those who aren't familiar, John also runs Sake Industry News. Recently, he thought to do something very similar to actually what we're doing today and shared a bit of his thoughts and feelings and expectations for the year ahead over there on his show. For those that are interested, I recommend you go over and check it out. Uh, sakeindustrynews.substack.com. You can find a lot of fantastic, as you would expect, sake industry news. There might be a little overlap between this week and what you find over there. Um, but for those who haven't checked that out, please do take a moment and hop over there and give that a listen and give it a read. And, of course, subscribe. So here we go. Let's hop on over to John. Greetings to all Sake On Air listeners. The year 2021 ended kind of raucously and it transitioned into a 2022 that we all hope is laden with potential. And here are three things that I expect to see develop or continue to trend in 2022. As a quick disclosure, the material here is part of the most recent issue of my newsletter, Sake Industry News. Uh, if you're a subscriber, thanks. If not, please consider it. Now, while it goes without saying, all of this is overshadowed by the effects of COVID. However, the related industries, in other words, sake production, F&B, international commerce and shipping, have all adapted to some degree, and we need to be positive and look forward to later in the year. And so the exercise of seeing what might trend in the coming year is surely worthwhile. So with that as a huge backdrop and a dominating set of boundary conditions, let's proceed. Number one, more kimoto, especially domestically. Kimoto seems to have taken on almost a cherished and almost appreciated presence in the sake world. I think a lot more brewers are relishing the kimoto challenge. In other words, the technical aspects of brewing the old traditional brewing method. And I think lots of consumers are saying how much they enjoy it, even though the truth is there's a wide range of styles of kimoto out there. Uh, so many that it makes it kind of hard to nail it down as a style. It could be the fine-grained, slightly restrained nature of a lot of kimoto that draws everyone's together, or it could be the historical significance, as it was the main method of producing the yeast starter for about 800 years, or the technical challenges to the brewers themselves of brewing this old traditional method. Or simply, it's just how versatile and enjoyable the resulting sake is. But whatever its appeal, expect to see even more kimoto on the market in 2022, especially domestically in Japan. Number two, more rich sake 
and more intense sake, however, especially in overseas markets. Now, while understated and subtle sake has long been prized in Japan, it's never been unequivocally better, uh, and tastes change across the years, and preferences of consumers change across the years. But lately, I seem to notice a lot more intensely gamey, or super sweet, or bone-dry sake on the market, and a good number of basically just pure umami bombs out there as well. Uh, my own personal preferences are rarely uh, in that number, um, but such sake seems increasingly popular, and I expect that sector to grow, especially overseas. Why especially overseas? Because many people overseas like impact and like intensity in their glasses. Think huge red wines and punk-hopped IPAs. It's just an observation. But I think um, along those lines, we'll see a lot more popularity of intense, rich, powerful sake overseas. And the third of my three observations is that I think we'll see more sake brands seem to appear on the market. We'll see a lot more brands that we've never heard of, and it will seem like new brands are coming out of the woodwork. The number of sake breweries in Japan is not growing. It's shrinking. It's kind of leveled out, but still, it's definitely not growing. But what I do see are sake brands and products from producers I've never heard of. Sake that only recently gained wider distribution. Now, while there's good points and bad points to all of this, and it could constitute a whole nother discussion here at Sake on Air, it's fun for consumers to find new sake to check out. So in the long run, I think it is a good thing. Why does it seem like there's so many new products on the market? There's a number of reasons. Uh, one, some producers are reviving second brands. There's a lot of sake breweries out there that have one brand for which they're known, but they'll also have another brand or two uh, that they can use if they want to. Very often, they would have one brand for their local sake, and then for the stuff they distributed on a national basis, they would use a second brand. For sure, there are a lot of breweries out there that bought up another brewery a long time ago that went under, and so they gained a second brand by having bought the brand from a brewery that went under. And this could have happened 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 years ago. Uh, very commonly, such second brands have been dormant or barely used, and brewers might decide that now is the time to dust off that brand and release it to the market again. So that's one reason why you might see a second brand coming from a brewer that you know, uh, even though you've never heard of that second brand. Another reason, there's some breweries in some regions that were doing just fine with local consumption, and now, for because the market is changing so much, they're becoming much more willing to open up and distribute nationally. Certainly competition. A lot of breweries are starting to feel the pressure of less consumption uh, and fewer consumers interested in sake. So the competitive environment might have forced a brewery to be a bit more creative and dust off that second brand and release it. So increased competition in their erstwhile local markets is one thing that might drive a brewery to start to work toward distributing on a larger scale, if not a national scale. Also though, the digital world has evened the playing field quite a bit in terms of marketing. In other words, uh, in the old days, it wasn't as easy to get national attention. But if you've got a local internet whiz kid at the brewery or someone that you can hire close by, all of a sudden you can market just as effectively as every other brewery in the country. Uh, and that obviously leads to more opportunities. As mentioned earlier, uh, these are nothing more than observations on my part. And so much could happen in 20 and 22 to dampen these developing sectors or to enhance them. So let's keep positive, and as I often like to say, our role remains singular. Enjoy as much sake as you can, and do your best to help those around you enjoy sake as well. Kampai. Next up, we've got some insight from Sebastian Lemoine. Hello, Frank. How's your second grandson doing? 
So, you're asking me my prediction for this year, 2052. Well, let, let me first ask you, why are we still using this recording and podcasting technology? I mean, our audience could directly connect to my augmented memory. I mean, I didn't do that brain surgery for nothing, did I? Um, I know I'm turning 85, so it's helping, but... Anyway, um, for this year, I can first say that we're going to have one of the most exuberant parties for the 34th anniversary of Sake on Air. And then, yes, I think this is for this year that it's going to happen. The first full-fledged Sake brewery in space. I believe that um, XH812 mask is going to do it. Um, we still can't live on Mars, but he has a space station to uh, to play with. And, and when you think that it's only well, less than 50 years after Kochi sent some Sakeist into space uh, at the beginning of the uh, 21st century, that's an amazing development. And I'm quite excited to see how Koji grows and how yeast behaves in such an environment. Anyway, um, my predictions are not always right. Um, just just take an example. I mean, what, what did I tell you uh, 30 years ago for uh, 2022? Here we are, 2022. Many things, of course, still look quite cloudy and, and uncertain as the pandemic is still with us and creating a number of, of disruptions. One of them, for example, is in the near future here in Japan, and I'm thinking about the first semester at least, uh, we will miss a large volumes of sake sales on-premise and in shops. But still, I have taken note of... Uh, a number of facts and that, that they help me to uh, offer you a bit of a, a bullish positive scenario for, for the industry. Um, while some of you may think that they're marginal and, I mean, not central to the industry, which is facing an, a number of, uh, of issues here, uh, I, I do feel that over the long run, over the long term, these will, they will have a, a positive uh, effects and so uh, bear with me. The, the the first thing is that overall the closure of bars and restaurants overseas in the US, in Europe and elsewhere or and or the constraints put on alcohol consumption in Japan in Izakayas and, and I do feel for all these businesses in the hospitality sector, I mean, these constraints have changed buying and consumption habits for Nihonshu or, or sake. Uh, I, I do trust that a number of new sake fans or even old sake fans have had to buy sake online and consume it with what they were cooking for dinner at home rather than source their sake at their local sushi joint and drink sake with sushi. I, it, it may sound like a small thing, but if I reflect on my own personal path on the way to sake, 
uh, I think that the consequences should not be uh, underestimated. Of course, it tells me um, be bullish for exports and overseas sake sales and to some extent Japanese uh, sake sales as well. Uh, the, the second fact talking about exports is that uh, figures released in uh, 2021 for 2020 show that China and Hong Kong have grown, grown fast and are now ahead of the US. Now, of course, there are peculiar factors involved for the US markets and, and we will see a, a catch up. But still, these strengths of China and Hong Kong is sending a, a signal because these two markets are known for their search for premium products. And so um, premium products will play an even greater role. Um, I'm using premium here, but what I'm, I'm really trying to think of is is luxury products uh, and that's that's not exactly the same thing and uh, we've seen some and we'll see i believe more uh, sake position as a luxury good um, we we had some japanese products on the shelves but um, what we're seeing is overseas um, companies in the, in the luxury sector or the beverage sector, getting interested in the category. And that may mean quite a bit of a change because they're bringing potentially a lot of capital and definitely uh, important um, uh, new channels of distribution for the category. Now, don't get me wrong, of course, I know that uh, luxury sake sales in terms of volumes are really, really small compared to mainstream sake. Uh, at the same time, and especially overseas, uh, luxury sales will play a, an important role for the overall awareness about the sake category, sake category one, and two, will um, kind of raise the image of the product. Talking about capital, I was really amazed by the number of projects and the amount of funds raised on crowdfunding platform. Now, of course, these monies are not equity capital with very limited exceptions. At best, they are working capital for breweries that would buy rice or special equipment with a view to brew a, a special sake. But most of the time, they are actually pre-sales of, uh, of sake and, and so these crowdfunding platforms are in effect offering a new sales channel for uh, new brands and, and new products. But as I just explained, um, they are encouraging breweries or association of breweries to take risks, uh, I mean venture into new projects, uh, new products, new collaborations and we're going to see um, a lot of that in 2022 as well, I think. Uh, and I'm thinking of one particular category of, of brewery here as well. Uh, I'm thinking of all these projects that received their export-only license for Nihonshu. And they cannot sell Nihonshu on the domestic market, but most of them have a license to produce other type of alcoholic beverages. And uh, I see some of them using or thinking of using crowdfunding 
as a way to finance their uh, sales of Doburoku uh, sake. Um, what do I expect here? Well, I expect that we're going to see uh, a few uh, interesting new references of Doburoku in the market. And because of the nature of the producers, a bit of buzz uh, about that. So let's enjoy Doburoku in 2022. Coming up next, let's hear from Christopher Pellegrini. Oh, jeez. Predictions, right? You're trying to make me look like a boob, I think. Um, okay. There's very little chance that either of these are going to be true, but I have a negative and a positive. I'm, I'm going to start with the negative. So one thing that's not been great is there's just not been a whole lot of business for Inchokten, food and drink places. And that means that distributors are feeling the pinch. The, the size of the orders that are coming in here in Japan are much smaller than normal. And it's been really tough for a lot of really amazing sakaya or liquor stores that are central to the distribution nature of things here in Japan. And that's partly because of the COVID state of things and how there's just no regularity. There's no way to foretell the future. Nobody has a crystal ball. We don't know when the next wave is going to come, when these um, quasi clampdowns are going to transpire. And so there's a lot of shops that are, are either sitting on too much product that they can't sell, or they are just very conservative, more conservative than usual. And they are maybe even limiting their menus now. So that's bad on all fronts. That's bad in terms of um, pretty much every subcategory of beverage alcohol that you can imagine other than the big sellers, which are things that come out of a, out of a tap. So highballs, beer, and anything else that, you know, any other type of sour or whatever that they batch produce. Compounding that is the fact that in the shochu industry anyway, and in other, maybe in slightly in other subcategories of the shochu industry, there is a bit of a trouble with ingredient supply. And that's going to make things incredibly challenging for the makers. The ingredients are becoming more expensive and it's becoming harder to get as much of the rice or the sweet potatoes or whatever you need. It's usually, it's mostly sweet potatoes, to be perfectly honest with you, as much as you need for a season to produce as much as you are accustomed to or as much as you think that you will need. And that's really, really not good. It's partly because of blight that has resurfaced again, especially in Kagoshima Prefecture, which has more shochu distilleries than anywhere else in the world, if you're counting it by region. And so these two compounding factors together mean that there's a lot of drama in the shochu industry right now. And because shochu, uh, sweet potato shochu is the subcategory that kind of carries the entire industry, along with barley, of course, this is a big issue because numbers are going to be weighed down and there's 
going to be a lot of margin pressure on the businesses in Kyushu to to make ends meet is going to be a a bit more challenging. And we may see a few more distilleries get mothballed for a year or two, if not close indefinitely. My prediction, if I can be so bold, is that this is going to continue. It may actually continue through the 2022 brewing season, which will start in July and end next year in June. And I really don't look forward to it. Um, The second part of my completely probably wrong predictions, although this one is based on a lot of personal experience, is that, and this one is way rosier, this is way nicer, this is way more fun, is that there are a lot of people who are stoked about Shochu and Aomori in the States, and I see that being a very big thing. There was Bruce Bozzi and Sandra Baker, the two people people behind Mujen Spirits and the the trio of Mujen brands, they got um, Anderson Cooper and Andy Cohen to yeah, just phenomenal. The balls drop just before the balls drop, and these these two gents are drinking Mujen rice shochu from Kumamoto. Really good stuff, and it was just huge. I mean, if you check the 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 searches for shochu immediately after that in the United States. It just went through the roof, of course, because these two celebrities were talking about it. And that's a sign of things to come, I feel. I was in the States last summer, a very large part of August and an even larger part of September. And I just saw it was, I don't know how to put it. It was just so gratifying because people had so much more knowledge than they had the last time I was in the States, which was pre-pandemic and people were really curious about Japan's indigenous spirits and while I was in market we were able to do a a bunch of things to help get some shochu on the cocktail menus of some impressive bars like the upper crust level the legendary level and that's a sign of things to come my prediction is that Shochu is about to get a lot more attention. Awamori too. Don't get me wrong. Awamori is going to be kind of drafting behind Shochu, but Shochu is going to be leading the way. And I think it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. You're starting to see places that you would never, never expect to see Shochu on the menu and they're carrying it. So stay tuned. My prediction is that Shochu is going to become more of a darling of the cocktail bar. And as more and more variety hits the U.S. shores and otherwhere, Europe, Australia, Africa, the Middle East, South, South America, as more and more brands arrive, you're just going to see more and more experimentation. And we're going to finally get to the point where there's a sweet potato cocktail to end all cocktails. You know, it's going to be named after a hotel or something or some, somebody, you know, who made it. And I can't wait. I just, I really am so excited about that. So the good and the bad, the, the negative from the front and the positive that I just talked about now, I think hopefully we can keep everybody afloat. Hopefully everybody keeps pulling in the same direction. I, I have high hopes for 2022. I, I, had high hopes for 2021 and they were largely realized. 
I think we're going to see a lot of optimism from the market. And I think we're going to really enjoy reading all the media about these drinks over the next 8, 12, 18 months. Now, let's get a few thoughts from Marie Nagata. Happy New Year to our listeners. I hope everyone had a lovely and safe New Year's and that you're all off to a great start of 2022. Okay, so predictions. Um, it's hard to predict a year when we're still facing so much uncertainty, but here's my shot at it for what it's worth. And for 2022, I have three predictions. One, more sustainably farmed and brewed sake to hit the market. Yay, go green. Um, I think more sake using locally or responsibly grown rice will emerge. And I expect to hear more news about breweries exploring with sustainable energy sources. Um, Kojima Sohonteni Yamagata recently was, was recently in the news for soon going full renewable in their production line as well as a small alliance of Hyogo-based brewers who are now growing their Yamada Nishiki with recycled biogas. And you can't forget an OG, if you will, of agri-forward brewer Sekiya Shizo from Aichi, who for years now have practiced circular agriculture for their domain-grown rice. Um, perhaps a similar train of thought. I'm seeing some organic sake as well, but maybe not at the same rate as we do in like, I don't know, kombucha or something. Um, yeah, and with such a bandwagon of corporations and businesses going green, um, both in and outside of the sake industry, I sometimes get um, skeptics who, uh, you know, who see these eco-friendly gestures as a mere marketing ploy by corporations, but um, insofar as sake is involved, I respectfully disagree because I think many of us are now beginning to see the impact of climate change on both agricultural and production side of sake brewing. Um, there's just no denying it, you know, in recent years there's been issues with some sakamai harvest due to excessive heat over the summer months. And some breweries I've spoken to said they're noticing changes in the water temperature from the wells and springs they source from. All this could adversely affect the future of sake industry, not to mention like other important factors like access to clean and abundant water and maintaining a, um, a working population size in the regional and remote areas where um, breweries are sometimes located. Um, so yeah, I commend them on their effort to be more sustainable and I can't wait to see more breweries and rice growers join them this year. Next, I predict sake bottles going smaller in 2022. Not to be confused with sake consumption going smaller, just sake bottles going smaller. Um, this one's kind of playing off the whole pandemic or post-pandemic trend, but I've personally noticed an increased offering and interest in smaller portion sizes in sake lately. Um, I don't unfortunately have the stats and figures to prove this point, but I'm definitely seeing more Dumi bottle options and single-serve cans, also known affectionately as one cups. 
I think this is reflecting the increasing shift to drink and dine at home or in small groups or if we're lucky enough to dine at a restaurant to do so solo as per the local government's request. I've associated single serve cans um, to be sort of readily available, no frills, um, or sometimes even like souvenir -y. But that perception is evidently due for an update. Um, just the other day, I received a box of different small cans of like fancy sake, you know, the daiginjos and the jinbaiginjos that I wouldn't have otherwise expected to have in a can. So that was a pleasant surprise. Um, I mean, you know, there's so much to love about them. They're so portable, you know, perfect for picnics, um, perfectly sized, convenient to drink from. They're also so easy to stock and enjoy at home. It makes every sense that there will be more home-friendly sake bottles and cans on the horizon. Okay, um, last but not least, I predict that the market will see an increase of premium or luxury sake going forward. Um, this one's gonna be quick. I'm just drawing a parallel here with the inflationary momentum we're seeing in many economies around the world and that coupled with not being able to move geographically or at least not with ease um i think there will continue to be a demand for luxury items that bring the experience to you rather than the other way around especially with the incoming players with export only brewing licenses and the continuing increase in demand overseas i think there is a market opportunity for premium line products for the discerning palette wherever you may be coming up next we've got predictions from rebecca wilson lai happy new year everyone and i hope wherever you are you are happy healthy and well well, as we're going into the third year of this global pandemic, I guess it's no surprise that my predictions for 2022 are pretty much a continuation of what we've been seeing in the sake market over the last 12 months. First, I've got some great news for our international listeners, because I predict that exports will continue to increase in 2022. Now, when the pandemic first started in 2020, the restaurant restrictions and bans on serving alcohol at restaurants that resulted here in Japan had an immediate impact on breweries' traditional um, sales markets. And the lack of B2C sales infrastructure for breweries to sell directly to end consumers saw many breweries losing the ability to deplete stock from their warehouses. And so brewers who already had export channels established quickly shifted all sales to the overseas markets. And based on conversations I've had with breweries over the last few months, more and more breweries will start to be, um, begin exporting this year. And those that already do export are looking to expand to new regions. The most significant growth I'm seeing will be in territories within mainland China, particularly within the, the southern um, territories of China, like Shenzhen. Now the demand for sake overseas is also being driven by the popularity of high-end Japanese cuisine around the world, particularly expensive sushi restaurants. As the ongoing travel bans and the strict entry restrictions for international visitors to Japan have made it impossible for food lovers to come here and enjoy their favourite cuisine. 
what we're seeing is a huge growth in high-end sushi restaurants, a huge growth in the exports of high-end Japanese ingredients, and a huge growth, therefore, in the volume of high-end Japanese sake to supply these restaurants. Because what we're hearing from um, chefs, restaurant owners, and sommeliers in overseas markets is that consumers are preferring to buy um, a pricier bottle of sake for their meal rather than a couple of cheaper varietals. Now this does come with a slight caveat however, due to the global shipping crisis and lack of reefer containers or refrigerated containers, your sake is most likely going to be a little bit more expensive this year than it has been previously. So unfortunately that is a global um, problem which is not limited to the sake industry. Now my next predictions are based on the horizontal tastings that I've been doing over the past year as well as the first Shiboritate and Shinshu releases of Rewa 3BY that we have been enjoying here in Japan. Now what I'm seeing is a continued trend towards a lower ABV or alcohol level across all grades and styles of sake. And while the average ABV of sake has been slowly decreasing um, over the last five years, in line with, I guess, the preferences of the Zetgeist, we are seeing more and more new releases that have been specifically brewed, brewed, not diluted, brewed to an alcohol level of 12 to 13%. And more often than not, they are being packaged with stylish, natural wine-like labels that are designed to appeal to a younger generation of modern consumers. And almost all of the new 12 to 13% ABV sakas that I've been trying recently have been released in 720ml bottles or shigoben, which is also kind of a nod towards producing a more lifestyle-friendly product that can be enjoyed in one evening or conveniently stored in one's home refrigerator. Also, we've been seeing the ABV of existing labels um, that um, are usually brewed to 15 or 16% dropping to 14 to 15%. So a sake that you are familiar with has now got slightly less punch than it did last year. Um, slightly less punch, but the balance is still fantastic in all of the examples that I've experienced. Now I think this is a really positive trend that is well suited to the more health conscious and housebound times that we're living in and I actually expect that this will become the new normal. And finally, the last trend that I've been noticing is that every brewery and their dog seem to be releasing a Kimoto style sake that's either brewed in a kiyoke or cedar tank or that's been barrel aged. Now these sake are wonderful, um, they are rich, they have a, often a juicy acidity and that wood contact can create wonderful aromas and sort of a buttery um, component to the flavour that is really compelling. So I guess that you could say my third prediction this year would be wood. There's going to be a lot of wood in 2022 I predict. Now I'm going to be a bit cheeky and add one more prediction uh, to my list of things that I'm expecting to see this year and that is more of a brewer's production will be uh, pasteurized, so hire or um, 
added heat is the is the kanji that is on the labels that you often see. Now the reason that um, pastoral sake is going to be more prevalent this year is really based on the global um, pandemic. Because of regular shutdowns at restaurants, um, a, a basic reduction in sales domestically, and the delays in shipping, it's really important that sake gets to the end consumer in its optimum condition. So many brewers will be selecting to pasteurize a larger proportion of their sake that maybe was previously nama or unpasteurized, just to make sure that the sake can get to where it needs to go in a stable condition and be enjoyed in its best quality. So that is perhaps a fitting um, prediction for 2022, given it's the year of the fire tiger, that um, a little bit of fire will also be added to your sake this year. Last but not least, a bit of insight for 2022 from Chris Hughes. Hello there, sake lovers. 2021 was definitely a better year than 2020, but that's not saying much since we had set the bar extremely low. That being said, there were some positive developments, I think, and while it's still unclear how big a hit the industry has taken in the long term, I think we can be positive about the future. I think 2022 will still have many challenges, and while it is hard to make concrete predictions with confidence due to the unpredictable and ever-changing nature of this pandemic, I do think 2022 could be quite an important year for the industry. So without further ado, here are my three predictions for 2022. Prediction number one. I predict that we will see an increase in sake lineups designed solely for pairing with food. Sake tastes even better when you pair it with food. Fact. And in 2021, I was commissioned to write tasting notes for several breweries and all these breweries requested food matching suggestions as well. This is of course relevant not only for the Japanese domestic market, but also for the exports market. More so, the latter. These breweries requested me to include a variety of food pairing options, and in general I'm seeing more of a conscious effort to make sake that pairs with all kinds of food. I also think we will see more collaborations with famous chefs like Shichiken's collaboration with Alain de Casse, there are a number of factors driving this trend, but I think the main one is the increase in people drinking sake at home. When people go out and buy a bottle of sake now, I think food pairing is one of the things they think about. So how do breweries make their sake more food pairing friendly? Well, as the Japanese dinner table is becoming increasingly westernized and with export markets in mind, I think this generally involves increasing levels of acidity and umami more modest aroma profiles and sake with cleaner finishes or washes will also be prevalent so as not to clash with the food. I think we will see more coarsely polished jimmais with very clean finishes. Most breweries will probably try and balance the five basic tastes sweet, sour, salty, bitter and of course umami. In fact Suige in Kochi Prefecture already produces such a sake and I think more will follow suit in 2022. My second prediction is an increased crossover into the spirits realm. Uh, now, don't worry, I don't mean that I'm predicting the death of sake. What I mean is that when restaurant sales dropped and the various bans on alcohol consumption and serving hours was implemented here in Japan, breweries found themselves with a surplus of sake. 
and to reduce that surplus, a few breweries obtained a spirits license and began producing spirits with rice itself or sake as a base. For some breweries, it started out as making sanitizer, uh, which was in short supply due to panic buying. But as hand sanitizer returned to the shelves, they had to find other ways to reduce their surplus. For many breweries, this has led to the realization or discovery that a little diversification into the spirits realm can not only provide a safety net in times like these, but can also enable them to target wider audiences and branch out into sectors they had never dreamed of tapping into. Generally, I think we are mainly talking about breweries that source their rice under contract from local farmers, because they will want to maintain a stable and consistent supply with these farmers, and in fact this may be a part of their contract. This is one way for them to continue the same level of supply while maintaining the sales volume to match. Saki Breweries baking spirits is actually nothing new. Most breweries make shochu from their leftover kasu or lees. However, more and more breweries are making the crossover into Western spirits, in particular vodka, gin and whiskey. And I see this continuing in 2022. And as a byproduct of this diversification, I also see an increase in new products which blend elements from the spirits realm back into sake. For example, I think we may see an increase in breweries using spirits they have produced as brewer's alcohol for alcohol-added sake. My third and final prediction is an increase in GIs. A GI, or geographical identification, is a sort of regional branding with a strict set of rules or best practices that corresponds to a particular origin, protecting the identity of various regional sake styles. Well, at least that is the intention. As far as sake is concerned, although the first sake GI was established as far back as 1995, and shochu even further back than that, there are still only a handful of regions with a GI. In 2021, only a few GI were added. However, I see the GI machine picking up speed in 2022. I've seen a few hints that a number of prefectures are ready and waiting in the wings to make their debut onto this stage, and whether these GIs are even necessary or have any meaning is a question for another podcast, and believe you me, it is hot topic among the team here. But this machine shows no sign of slowing down or stopping, and I think it has to an extent become a bit of a bragging right for regions in Japan to have one. I think it is possible that we may see a very different GI template going forward as the industry continues to improve the system. And that will do it for this week's episode of Sake on Air. Thanks again so much for tuning in. And like I said at the top of the show, please do follow us over on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter and do let us know what you're thinking about and what you're excited for in the worlds of Sake and Shochu for 2022. As always, the show is brought to you with the fantastic support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association and is a co-production between Export Japan and Potsuke Productions with fantastic editing work by Mr. Frank Walter. We'll be back here in another couple of weeks with plenty of more sake on air coming your way. Until then, come by.